Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're here. I don't think anyone has mentioned yet this morning. Perhaps they did and I didn't hear it. Or perhaps I forgot uh, that we are using our new sound system this morning for the first time. The big, you know, I didn't picture it like this. I pictured these big black uh, speakers hanging, you know, very intrusive. But you hardly even notice these. In fact, almost everybody that comes in has to be shown or you take a while to get it. They're also adjusting my voice apparently is kind of a weird voice to uh, go through the system and so they're trying to do that. Yes, I understand there are things that are more weird, that are weirder than my voice. In fact, uh, last week I was had a sentimental moment as I talked about how meaningful the song You Alone Can Rescue was to Linda. Turns out it was the wrong song. <laughs> I mean, I, I woke up with a start Tuesday morning, you know, really early, and I thought, oh my goodness, it was mighty to save. That's what it was. But see, at my age, it's one of the advantages of my age. You can be sentimental about things that never happened, you know. <laughs> um, you, you meet new friends every day without expanding your, your, your books, you know, and Pretty soon I'll be hiding my own Easter eggs, so that's, uh, you know, there are advantages to this age. I mean, you have to look hard to find them, but there are advantages. Well, you don't need to raise your hand for this, but I wonder how many of you love a good mystery. I'm going to guess that a lot of you like mysteries, whether you encounter them in books or at watching movies or even in, in real life conundrums. I mean... There, there are some mysteries that don't appeal to us at all because they're out of our area of interest. But, but just imagine for a moment that you bought a house that was over 100 years old, but it had been beautifully restored. And you'd been living in this home for, oh, I don't know, four or five years. And then all of a sudden, you discover... That it's an old house, so they, you know, they didn't take advantage of all the space like they... They do these days, but all of a sudden you discover this compartment, this secret compartment behind a closet, and you and you go in there, and it's it's, it's a fairly sizable room, and there's a chair and a desk and an empty box on the desk, sitting on the desk. I mean, don't you wonder what in the world went on in this room that now belongs to you? What happened here? Well, maybe you don't want to know. I mean, sometimes it's funner, just you know, more fun just imagining than it is to to really know and to solve the problem. And then there are mysterious people. Some of you know the mysterious Mr. Bates, don't you? Maybe we'll find out more about Mr. Bates tonight on Downton Abbey. That's my best class in imitation. I mean, was this man extremely kind and thoughtful, or was he a murderer? Or, Or both, perhaps. He is mysterious, this Mr. Bates. Now, if you like mysteries, and especially if mysterious people intrigue you, then you're going to enjoy the message today about Melchizedek, this mysterious man, Melchizedek. You know, just last week I was bragging on David about how he picks songs that so relate to the text. And and did you hear Melchizedek anywhere in the songs today? Actually, I haven't heard Melchizedek anywhere, but you heard Jesus, and Melchizedek was pointing to Jesus. We're going to encounter 
this priest of God in Genesis 14. He points to God's gracious provision of a mediator for us. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later. But this man is mysterious, appearing, as it would seem, out of nowhere. And that's unusual in Genesis for somebody to just appear out of nowhere. Uh, and, and, and he, he, he walks right back into the fog from which he came almost as quickly as he got on the scene. He's here and he's gone. Never to be mentioned again in the Old Testament except for one time in Psalm 110. The only other author that talks about him at all in Scripture is the author of Hebrews, uh, whomever that might be. And this guy talks about Melchizedek a lot. And we're going to spend some time in Hebrews this morning. Much of the Melchizedek mystery is unraveled in the New Testament, but that's really not surprising. See, the New Testament uses the term mystery in this way. It was a truth previously hidden that has now been revealed. The Old Testament prophets and angels, it turns out, wanted to know about the things that the Old Testament prophets were writing. That's what Peter tells us anyway. But it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves or the people of their era. They were serving us, in fact, by writing these Old Testament prophecies. In Jesus, the prophecies of the Old Testament not only were fulfilled, but all of a sudden made perfect sense. A lot of things that you're like, if you're just reading through Psalm 110, which you're going to spend some time on on that in home group this week, but if, if you're just reading through, you're like, Huh? What? Really? But it's then revealed in the New Testament. If you want a good place to go in the New Testament to see how it talks about mystery, uh, Colossians 1. The end of Colossians 1 is a good place to see how this term is used and understand mystery in the, in, in the Scripture. Now, we're going to talk more about Melchizedek than we will Abram today. And we're going to spend as much time in Genesis or probably more time in Hebrews as, as we are in Genesis, in other words. But in, in order to grasp, fully grasp uh, what is being taught here, we need to understand what was happening in, in Genesis 14. Um, that point us to Jesus. Uh, and so we need to set up this encounter that Abram has with Melchizedek. Now, even if we were to read the first part of Genesis 14, in addition to the fact that there would be a whole lot of names and places that I would have to pronounce and probably get wrong along the way, uh, I, even still we'd have to explain it. So I'm just going to jump right into an explanation of what was happening at the first part of um, of Genesis 14, and I'm going to use local kinds of places to give you an idea. There is war in Genesis 14. Now, if you if you saw this on a movie, you would be captivated and, and riveted. We, we read through it, and, and the Bible would say, yeah, I don't know all those places, but, but if, if, if this were portrayed in a movie, you would be mesmerized with what was going on, all the drama and suspense. The only reason that we're getting the scoop on this war is because it involves Abram. And the only reason it involves Abram is because he goes to rescue Lot. Last week, you'll recall, we, we saw where Lot unwisely separated himself from Abraham. And, and when he did so, he was moving away from the protection that God had promised Abram and all those who were connected with Abram. He separated himself. Lot pitched his tent outside of Sodom. 
in chapter 13. But by the time we see him in Genesis 14, he is living in the city with his family. Unfortunate timing for Abram's nephew. There was a lot going on in Sodom at the time. Sodom, along with four other local cities, were under the dominion of four Cities up north. One was Babylon. Shinar is Babylon's talking about Babylon. And, and, and other larger cities up, up north. And they had to pay tribute to these uh, cities from the north. This northern alliance. And they had done so for 12 years. But now they had rebelled. And here a year later. The larger cities came to deal with the kings. In the cities of, in the south. And they, they were dealing with, with a lot more than just these, these five cities. But they had a, a campaign. They, they, they got all the troops together and they said, all right, boys, we're going to head south. Those guys are no longer paying us tribute. We're going to teach them a thing or two. Now, when you read in Genesis, you'll recall, you see all these kings. If you were the, the head of a city, much like our mayor today, you recall considered to be the king of that city. Now... Those kings had a lot more authority and power than the, the mayors of our cities do. But it would be like being the king of Anger, you know, or Coates or Lillington. That's really what it was like when you read about these kings in, in, in the Old Testament. To put the War of Genesis 14 in perspective, it would be like the king of Richmond, Virginia, and three other cities in, in Virginia coming down, crossing the North Carolina line, and just taking out... Uh, Rocky Mount, Wilson, Smithfield, Dunn, and then they sort of move over, you know, and pick up Coates and Andrew, and, and, and then they start heading back north. Uh, it was a pretty impressive campaign by this group, if you, if you have a map in your Bible that shows you. Well, along the way, uh, Sodom was conquered, but the king of Sodom got away. Lot didn't get away. Uh, He was taken captive along with his family, which was fortunate because usually they'd kill the men and take the women and children. But but Lot was captured. He was heading north with with the conquering armies. And word came to Abram that Lot had been taken, and so he gathered his men together, 318 in all, and 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 he headed out after these fairly impressive armies. Now, I said up front that Melchizedek was mysterious, but... But but Abram has a little bit of mystery too. I mean, this is the guy that we just last read about a couple of chapters ago in Egypt who said to his wife, hey, pretend you're my sister so they won't kill me, all right? And now he and his 318 men, I don't know if that included his allies or not, but, but anyway you cut it, they're going after a, a, a pretty significantly superior force. And they take them, they ambush them at night and put these armies to flight. Abram recovered Lot and all the people and all the goods that had been taken. That's where we pick up our text. So we're going to begin reading in Genesis 14, verse 17, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And as is our custom, if you would, please stand while we read the word. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer, see what I'm talking about? I mean, there's a lot of that in the first part of the chapter. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. 
And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abram saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, to God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let And these are his allies. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Father, we uh, pray that you would open our eyes uh, to understand your word today. Open our hearts to receive it. Uh, As we see how these gospel origins are all through Genesis, may our hearts rise in gratitude for the ways that you have provided for us, a mediator, one to stand in between your holiness, your righteousness that demands a payment for sin. One who took the consequences of our sin upon himself and now whoever lives to make intercession for us, to speak on our behalf, We pray these names, we pray these things in the name of that one, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, we've just read about Abram's encounter with the two kings after his victorious campaign to rescue Lot. These two men that we encounter, Melchizedek and the king of Sodom, are quite different, more than you might realize at first glance. First, Melchizedek, king of Salem, comes out to greet Abram and he brings bread and wine, bread and wine. I can't get away from bread and wine. That's fairly interesting, although that's not the point here. But but it is royal fare. It's like a feast for this conquering army that is coming back. Melchizedek's um, meal was more than was required. Uh, Mysterious Melchizedek was no ordinary king. He was priest of El Elyon, God Most High. While Melchizedek recognizes Abram, he does so in the context of their mutual faith in God. They worship the same God, El Elyon. How did he know God? How did Melchizedek know God? I mean, he's just, all of a sudden, he's on the scene. We don't know anything about him. And yet, he's worshiping the same God as Abram. And yet, God had told Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. We're not told how he knows God, but he does. It's very obvious that he worships the Lord. Melchizedek, in fact, attributes Abram's success to God Most High, a name that Abram affirms in just a moment as he's speaking to the king of Sodom. So acknowledging Melchizedek's special status in the kingdom, his special place as a representative of God, as a mediator, 
if you will. Abram gives a tithe, a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek. That was the standard for the day for priestly duties. And Abram recognized him not only as a priest. There were priests all over the place for different, that worshiped different deities. But, but here Abram is saying, I acknowledge that you are a priest of God most high. It's remarkable on so many levels, not the least of which is that it points us to Jesus. We're going to think about that in more detail in a moment. But before we do, let's just finish with the, with the king of Sodom. This may sound like a generous offer that he, that he, that he makes to, to, to Abram. He says, tell you what, just, just give me the people that belong in our city and you can take all the spoils of the war. Sounds like a generous offer. It wasn't. I mean, just think about this. Abram, as the conqueror, as the rescuer, had the rights to everything. What the king of Sodom should have said was, Abram, thank you so much for risking your life to rescue our people when you could have stayed safe in Mamre. I am your servant. Do with me as you will. I mean, Abram could have required some sort of monetary payment from the king of Sodom to himself. He could have said, all right, you're not going to have to pay those guys anymore, but you are going to have to pay me. Instead, the king of Sodom says, tell you what, how about you take all the goods, I'll take the people. Abram saw through that offer and said, no, no, no. I'm not taking, nobody gets credit for what has happened here but God. This is pretty impressive too when you think about it because here's Abram who, you know what it's like when, when, when you wimp out on one thing and then all of a sudden you come through on another, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, you know? I mean, here's Abram. He's got this opportunity to be thinking, wow, I really, you know, we kicked, well, no, I better not. We really routed those, you know, northern armies. And I'm going to take credit for it. But he didn't. He said, all credit goes to God. And he says, if I'm not going to take credit, I'm certainly not giving you credit for making me rich. I am blessed by God, not by any man. Abram's men had had rightly eaten from the spoils of war and he insisted that his allies get what they wanted, but Abram refused to take anything more. So do you see the difference between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom? The name Melchizedek, by the way, means king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Those are attributes that are often associated with Jesus. So is it possible that Melchizedek was Jesus? That he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ on the earth? Is that possible? I mean, there are lots of reasons to think that he was. But no, this was not Jesus. God almost certainly appeared in human form to Abram in Genesis 18, which we'll come to in a few weeks, but not here. How do we know? Well, turn over to Hebrews 7 where we're going to have quite a few questions answered about this mysterious Melchizedek who won't be so mysterious after that. The author of Hebrews began talking about Melchizedek in chapter 5. But we're going to look at chapter 7 where we'll find two references to Psalm 110 verse 4. Psalm 110, just a very short psalm. I think it's about six, six or seven verses. I can't remember. It's one of the most... 
often quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. So much was packed into it, though it was quite confusing at the time. I mean, you'd only, if you read Psalm 110, apart from understanding God's plan in Jesus, you just scratch your head and say, what's going on here? Uh, you're going to spend a lot, a little more time in Psalm 110 in home group this week. We're only going to scratch the surface this morning. I want to give you a bit of foundation so that hopefully Hebrews 7 will make sense as we take a brief look at this remarkable truth that is contained in this chapter. So let's start this process by thinking about the biblical concept of a mediator. What is a mediator anyway? Now, we usually think of a mediator as someone who hears the dispute by two opposing parties, and he, he hears both sides, and he takes the information, and he, he, he is sometimes given quite a bit of authority. Uh, and, and then so he makes a decision and says, okay, well, this is how this dispute is going to be settled. This man is often given, or woman is often given a great deal of authority, and people make their best case, and then... The mediator makes a decision, but he's trying to do it in uh, as equitable and amicable a way as possible so that everybody is happy, but he is going to go with the law. But now when you think about the dispute that God has with us, it's only one way. I mean, you hear a lot of people who have disputes with God these days, but the dispute really only goes one way. God is holy, we're sinful, so this is not a mediation of equals by any stretch of the uh, matter. Uh, God gets to set the terms. Mediation is used two different ways in, in, in Scripture. First, a mediator is a representative of God, mediating God's authority, rule, and blessings to the people. Now, a mediator in the Old Testament implies, well, all through Scripture, implies that there is a covenant between God and man, and this person is the one who is administrating the terms of God's covenant with man. The covenant, again, remember one of the titles of the message in this Genesis series was the God who writes his own agreements. He gets to set the terms. They are quite generous for us. They were not so generous in the Old Testament because all he did was say, give them the law and say, you have to meet this standard if you want to be right with me. But even then... Men and women understood that the only way to get to God was through belief in his promises. It's what we've heard about Abraham over and over again. Um, As I said, a mediator implies a covenant. Now, we've sort of played at the idea, toyed with the idea of covenant all through Genesis to this point. But in the next two weeks, in Genesis 15 to 17... It gets pretty serious. Sean is going to preach both of those weeks on covenant. We're going to understand what this covenant that God has with man, ministers to man, presents to man is, and a lot more fully. Uh, Mediators, both people and law as we see, the law was a mediator for God, play a huge role in covenant life. God... mediated his rule over all creation through Adam. Abraham mediated God's blessings to the nations, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And it also indicated that those who cursed Abraham would be cursed 
by God. The ones who cursed this mediator would be cursed by God. Moses was the chief mediator of the Old Testament with the law communicating God's expectations of righteousness to Israel and Israel in turn mediating those expectations to the world or stating those expectations. But most people rejected the law of God outright. Nobody could keep it, but most people rejected it. Since no one could meet the standard of righteousness that God required, the law showed the need for a mediator to stand between God or before God on behalf of man. We were in big trouble. So the law established this elaborate sacrificial system. And priests would daily offer sacrifices for sins. But once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holy with a blood sacrifice and offer this blood as payment or as a covering for the sins of the, of, of the men and women of the covenant. But we all know that this offering was temporary because the priest not only was just doing this until the next year, but he was also offering the blood sacrifice for his own sins. He was not eligible to offer sacrifice for, for, for others because he had to have this blood sacrifice for himself as well as the people. What was needed was a sacrifice, an offering of blood from one who could stand in the stead of sinners. But since... We are all sinners. You see the problem. There was no one eligible to offer such a sacrifice to God until Jesus. Jesus was 100% human, 100% God. He never sinned, so he was eligible to offer a sacrifice, not a temporary sacrifice, but a once and for all sacrifice so that all who would believe in that sacrifice the same way that Old Testament saints came to God through belief, all who would believe in Jesus' sacrifice would be made God's children. So, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice in a priestly manner for God's covenant people, but that presents a problem. How was Jesus eligible to serve, to act as a priest before God. Kings came from what line? Judah. Priests came from what line? Levi. Jesus was from the line of Judah. It was not permissible for him to be a priest. (coughs) Except that he wasn't a priest After the Levitical order, he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek? Well, let's look at Hebrews 7. I love the way verse 1 begins. For this Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, this man, this king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Slaughter is a little bit, that's that's kind of a, that really implies more than the Greek word does after he had whipped the kings. And, and Melchizedek blessed Abram. And, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. <coughs> he is first, <clears throat> by translation of his name, 
king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Melchizedek was both priest and king. That was forbidden later in Israel. Kings came from the line of Judah. Priests came from the line of Levi. But here is Melchizedek who is very much like Jesus. Now we know based on the text that Melchizedek was not this pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Because the word resemble does not allow those two to be the same person. Melchizedek and Jesus were separate people. He was a type of, uh, of Jesus A picture of the one who was to come. Make sure you don't think of that as the other way, that Jesus was a type of Melchizedek. No, Melchizedek was foreshadowing this one who would come from the line of Judah but would also be a priest eligible to offer a sacrifice, eligible to stand in the way, a mediator, so to speak. And I think I just blew right over that second use of the term mediator as one who stands and argues on behalf of the people before God. So Jesus is going to be that person, but he can only be so if he is a different kind of priest than the one who came from Abraham, from Levi. In Genesis, genealogies were very important. In fact, most people will say the whole book is structured around those toledots, those lines, those genealogies, those lists of of, of people passing down from one generation to the next, always pointing us to Jesus. Sometimes, you know, the, the, the genealogies go off in the wrong direction and they're just short, really brief. But over and over we keep coming back to this line of Judah that is pointing us to Jesus. So genealogies are very important. So it's quite significant that Melchizedek just seems to appear out of nowhere. Verse 3 doesn't mean that Melchizedek didn't have any parents. It just means that since there's no genealogy, we don't know where to connect him. He does sort of come out of nowhere. Like Jesus, who, even though he was born of Mary, had no beginning, has no end, but he ever lives to make intercession for us. Well, let's keep going. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, the father of all who would believe, the father of not only the Jews but the father of all of us who put our faith in in Christ. See how great this Melchizedek was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendant from, descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Melchizedek clearly knew and worshipped the same God that Abraham worshipped. Abram's tithes represented his acknowledgement of Melchizedek as a priest or representative of God, though Abraham is known as the father of all who believe through Jesus. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Are you still with me? I know you're tempted to, to, to say, uh, okay, I'm just checking out for the rest of the... But look, here's the deal. This ought to, under, this ought to, to be a clue to us how important this order, this form is to God, the righteous God, the righteous creator of the universe. And do your best to get just a little bit of the truth that's here. In Hebrews, as we keep going, obviously we could have spent weeks and weeks in the book of Hebrews. But he's just essentially saying, God has a specific way that this has to be carried out. And over and over and over, it looks like there's a block that it's not going to happen. But God makes a way, and he made that way before the world ever began. And this Melchizedek, who comes out of nowhere in Genesis points us to the gospel origins that were there all along. Since Abraham was the father of the Levites in God's eyes, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, acknowledging a superior priesthood. That's significant because Abram was acknowledging one superior to him, the one that God had said, through you all the families. Of the earth will be blessed. Keep going. Now if perfection had been attainable. Through the Levitical priesthood. For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been. See, see the Levites are mediating God's. Law to the people. What further need would there have been. For another priest to arise. After the order of Melchizedek. Rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. So not only are they mediating God's covenant, but they are also standing in between God and the people. But wasn't enough. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. <clears throat> Jesus came from Judah. Nobody from Judah has ever served at the altar, Saul from the tribe of Benjamin tried to do that and God judged him and said, you're done. Essentially, the writer is saying here that the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood was insufficient. It was inadequate. It was never going to be enough for men and women to be forgiven. A change was necessary. And verse 14 indicates the problem that the following verses address. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This became, becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and this is Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I, man, I know the people reading Psalm 110 were saying, huh? Huh? 
See, you're, again, you're going to think about this in home group. Verse 1 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus used that verse to say, you know what? He was pointing to me. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, when he talked about you were a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever, you know what he was doing? He was pointing to Jesus. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Wow, that was a pretty elaborate system to end up being useless, wasn't it? For the law made nothing perfect. Can't. The law cannot. All it can do is just set the standard. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw Near to the God. The law just says, you're, you're so far away from God, you've got no hope. But now a new, better hope is introduced. Through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Back to Psalm 110. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now Jesus is going to mediate a far better covenant to us. But he's going to also stand as a mediator between God and us. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. One after another, they just all died because they were sinners. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. So Jesus was eligible to serve as high priest, offering himself as a perfect sacrifice, not as a Levite, but as both king and as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I I realize these are deep waters, but just look at the benefits to those of us who believe and, uh, and, and who have a high priest who can ever represent redeemed sinners to God. Verse 25, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Not one of us trying to make do for a year, but one who was unlike us totally in that he was perfect and holy. He has no need like those other high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law. Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What does this all mean for us? Well, it means that we can stand before a holy God in a perfect state. How how is that possible when we are aware of the depth of our sinfulness? Because Jesus paid the debt that we owe to God at the cost of his blood. That blood sacrifice that he offered was the only thing that was going to satisfy God. Not our good works. 
Because we could never be. We were hopeless and helpless. And God made a way for Jesus to be eligible to be prophet, priest, and king. We've only talked mostly about priest and king today. But he was prophet as well. Prophet of God. And it was impossible in the way things were structured. But even before the law was ever administered, God had made a way for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice. We don't need anyone to plead for God's mercy to us other than Jesus. He is perfect. We don't need to confess our sins to any man. We need to confess our sins to God through Jesus. God the judge, the perfect judge, the ultimate judge. We're to, this is language of, of the highest court in the universe with the perfect judge and we have business that we have to do with him. We need the right advocate. We need a mediator to stand in between God and us and to say, Father, I paid for this one sins. He's innocent. And the father says, yes, indeed, not guilty. When Satan comes to God, when others accuse us, when our consciences accuse us, our mediator is standing before the father saying, this one belongs to me. I paid for her sins. I paid for his sins. Not guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1, coming right on the heels of Romans 7, where he says, I can't do anything right. I do everything wrong. I sin like I am a reprobate, and I so desperately want to please God, but I can't. Is there any help for me? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we apply this? For starters, just do what you're going to be doing all through eternity, saying hallelujah. You made a way when it was we were in serious trouble. You made a way through Jesus. This man who was a priest after the order of Melchizedek and from the line of Judah, king, God's king in his kingdom. You're going to be doing that for all eternity, you know. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a savior. Then tell someone else the good news. That a way has been made that they have a mediator if they will just believe. If they will just trust that Jesus died for their sins. They'll have someone represent them to this holy God. He is a prophet of God, a king from the line of Judah, and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Turn to your neighbor and say it's about Jesus turn your neighbor on the other side say it's not about you do we get it it's about Christ we try to make it about ourselves about where we are whether it's I don't believe or I'm I'm considering believing or I I believe firmly or we pat ourselves on the back because of those positions but it's happening to us because of his will he's doing the acting the choosing 
to save him. It's on us to be his sheep. And on one hand, I feel like, is that all I am? Just a, just a sheep? But something tells me uh, it's just going to be one awesome, beautiful group of sheep that point to him, singing his praises. Let's do that this week as we receive this blessing. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. Again, it's about him to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.